Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Kudos and commendations tonight for a group of teenagers who jumped into action to rescue a child in serious danger on Grouse Mountain. The child dangling from a chairlift and quickly running out of time. Catherine Urquhart has more on their quick save, which was all caught on camera. They were breathtaking moments, all captured on video. That's crazy. Just after an eight-year-old boy and his family load the Screaming Eagle chairlift, the child is dangling. His father's grasp, all that's keeping the boy from falling an estimated six meters. There was a man with a kid struggling to keep the kid in the chair um, and yelling for the operator to stop the chair. But the operator didn't hear because the music was too loud. And so the chair kept on going up and up and up. Then something incredible happens. Five young boys, just 13 and 14 years old, create a makeshift rescue trampoline. So I pointed to the net up there and I said, you go grab the net and me and Josh will go and run and get this padding. So then I ran up behind him and helped him strip that off and then go and put it on the block, thing that blocks it off. Well, and I yelled up and I said, okay, you need to take your skis off because if you fall with your skis on, it's probably going to be worse. And then at one point we were just, okay, you just need to trust us. You just need to drop. And so then he dropped. We caught him. Wow, they're heroes. The little boy was unharmed. He was just like kind of sitting there like on the mat, just like his face was just like, just like, yeah. He didn't really know what to think, I don't think. Here at the district of North Vancouver, Mayor Mike Little has told Global News that the boys were creative, courageous, and heroic. He's hoping to honor them, possibly with certificates of appreciation. As for why the boy slipped off the lift? In this particular circumstance, uh, it was a uh, loading uh, issue, uh, so I encourage people when they enter the loading area to be uh, to be aware of their surroundings and if they feel like they need some special attention or help getting on the chair that they, they notify the lift operator. Officials at Grouse Mountain wouldn't comment on the incident, saying only that each boy would have their season's passes extended for another year. Well deserved for the five young teens who are true heroes. It was an instinct almost, just you locked onto like a zone and you're just like, okay, this needs to be done. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Police in the interior are investigating the disappearance of a Merritt cowboy and now appealing to the public for video footage. Ben Tyner was reported missing a month ago when his riderless horse was discovered on a logging road off Highway 97. A major search effort was launched, but no sign of Tyner has ever been found. And eventually, the search was called off. Investigators are now asking anyone who was in Merritt on the weekend of January 26th and 27th and who has dash cam or any other video footage to please come forward. 
B.C. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson is in the hot seat today for comments he made about renters in this province. Wilkinson criticizing the NDP's efforts to address the challenges of the rental market, calling renting fun and enjoyable. But his critics tonight are saying it only proves how much the Liberal leader is out of touch. Richard Zussman reports. Brian Clark and his wife have been renting in Victoria for years, still dreaming about owning that home. Renters um, are often overlooked when it comes to housing decisions. There are lots of renters feeling slighted by Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Wilkinson rising in the B.C. legislature this week with these thoughts. I was a renter for 15 years. I lived in a dozen different rentals. It was challenging at times, but it was fun. It was part of growing up and getting better. We've all done it. It's kind of a wacky time of life, but it can be really enjoyable. Being a renter is a fact of life. It's a rite of passage. Critics have been quick to pile on. What we heard yesterday really demonstrates how the BC Liberals are, are out of touch. The province says there are 1.5 million renters in the province. They live in towers, they live in homes, and advocates say this is a clear example of why we need to change the way British Columbians think about renters. There's just no way that renting should be seen in that way as, as fun, as a phase leading to somewhere else uh, on this adventure. Renting is not fun. Wilkinson was not available for a TV interview on Thursday, but in a phone call said he was trying to make the point clear more rentals are needed to deal with the province's housing crunch and the province isn't doing enough. But Stephen Portman from the Together Against Poverty Society says Wilkinson's comments are just a carryover from when the Liberals were in government, who he says did very little for renters. I think his comments, though not surprising, they reflect an old world view and, and, and policies and legislation that we've seen from this government, from that government in the past. The current government also planning on implementing widespread recommendations from a rental task force, including caps on the amount landlords can increase rent. The NDP also promising a $400 grant for renters in the last election. That's still on the table, but not delivered yet. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Meantime, in New Westminster, a group of landlords has filed a lawsuit unhappy with rental-only zoning that the city approved just a few weeks ago. The lawsuit claims the decision by the city was unfair, even though it falls under the province's new legislation. Jill Bennett explains why and how the outcome could have consequences for property owners and renters in other municipalities. Rental housing is a big issue in New Westminster, with those fighting so-called renovations taking their cause to council earlier this month. The city has brought in bylaws to stop the practice. It is also the first city in B.C. to use new provincial legislation to create rental zones. You know, there's no doubt we moved uh, very uh, very quickly on, on this file, and really the intent was to, to actually prevent any opportunity of mass evictions of, of the buildings. But moving quickly has in part landed the city at the receiving end of a lawsuit filed by the owners of six privately owned buildings all included in the zoning change. The units have been rented for years but they are stratas and could have been sold as condos before the zoning change, something owners spoke about during a public hearing. This building uh, is not a purpose-built rental building. It is a commercial and residential condominium building. It always has been. Our family never would have built Geordie Place had we known that one day we could not sell it. 
While there are no immediate plans to sell any of the units in question, the mayor says the decision to include them in the rental-only zoning was also made because in the past couple of years, tenants in 315 units have been forced out. There was another building in a similar circumstance that was stratified where uh, all, of the, all of the tenants uh, were evicted from the building and, uh, and the strata units were, were individually sold. The minister responsible for the legislation allowing rental-only zones says she's aware of the legal action. Our government gave local governments the tool, a tool that they have asked for at the UBCM, uh, looking for another way to make sure that renters have opportunities in communities right around the province to have the kind of home that they can afford. And so we gave them the tool and it's up to local governments to determine how to best use that tool. The lawsuit claims New Westminster Council acted in bad faith. The owners want the new zoning tossed out. Jill Bennett, Global News. Well, growing student enrollment in Surrey means that city's space crunch is getting worse. Surrey's already using hundreds of portables, and come this fall, they'll need a few dozen more. Jordan Armstrong explains how much it's expected to cost and the school board's frustration. They're known as portables, but in Surrey, perhaps they should be renamed permanents. The unpopular modular classrooms are not going anywhere. In fact, there will be even more of them this fall. It really shouldn't come as too big of a surprise that we need another 20 to 30 portables. The bigger shock should be how we're having to pay for those portables, which is out of our operating funds. The cost to the district, $10.5 million. To put it in simple facts, so people can understand what we're saying is, that $10.5 million would amount to probably somewhere in the region of another 100 teachers. The district calling for more help from the province, citing Surrey's position as BC's fastest growing school district. Enrollment ballooning by 1,200 students a year. We're a unique district. There's no question about that. We are 13% of the provincial budget for education. Five new schools are slated for construction and six are getting additions. But some parents feel the timeline is too slow. The answer is that we need a system in place, a less bureaucratic system to get through the red tape so that we can go from approval to opening of a school in a much shorter time frame. Premier John Horgan, who campaigned on eliminating portables from Surrey within four years, has since backed away from that promise. We're focused on making sure that we're building as quickly as we possibly can to meet the needs, not just in Surrey, but around the province. By this fall, Surrey could have 365 portables. And with a student population of nearly 77,000, there are more kids in Surrey public schools than people in all of New Westminster. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Well, the shock waves are still rumbling through the halls of Parliament after Jody Wilson-Raybould's searing testimony yesterday, accusing the Prime Minister's office of inappropriately pressuring her on the SNC-Lavalin case. Justin Trudeau is expected to shuffle his cabinet again tomorrow, and while political experts weigh in on what's likely going on behind the Liberal curtain, her constituents are standing behind her. Here's Aaron MacArthur. Mr. Morneau, okay, do you think that SNC-Lavalin is too big to prosecute? Duck and cover. The Liberal government trying to limit the damage done from Wednesday's testimony by the former Attorney General. Everyone from the Finance Minister to the Prime Minister trying hard to change the narrative. Canadians expect their government to look for ways to protect jobs. Wilson-Raybould stunned Ottawa with her testimony in front of the Justice Committee. Her role as Attorney General was being compromised by key members of the government on behalf of SNC-Lavalin. 
I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere. When she declined, she claimed she was shuffled out to a minor portfolio. In the last 24 hours, there have already been calls for a criminal investigation, for a public inquiry, and for the Prime Minister to resign. The former top law officer of the country said yesterday she didn't think that anything was illegal, uh, but inappropriate. Um, and so, you know, the punishment for inappropriate activity is political, not legal. The future of the Liberal Party might be up in the air, as is Wilson Raybould's position in it. What is not in question is her reputation. That's when she's in a good mood. Her family, Indigenous leaders from across the country, and voters in a riding of Vancouver Granville uh, offering almost unanimous support. Very good. Yeah. Well, I think she's great. She might run again. Would you vote for her? Of course, of course. Oh, I would. I would. So I've been NDP all the way, all all my life, so I've tended to go that way, but I would think differently this time around if she was on the ballot. A peek behind the curtains of how politics works in Ottawa. The Prime Minister promising a thorough investigation from the Ethics Commissioner. The political fallout won't fully be realized until the election this October. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. Keith Baldry joins us now with a little bit more on this. Keith, uh, obviously SNC-Lavalin, important for a lot of jobs in Quebec, but the company's pretty entrenched in a lot of projects out here in the West, too. Oh, no kidding. I mean, SNC-Lavalin basically is at the epicenter of uh, major construction on public infrastructure projects, primarily transportation ones. Particularly, just recently, they've been shortlisted to be on the uh, building the new uh, replacement for the Patello Bridge. Uh, but it doesn't stop there with SNC-Lavalin. They have a long history of building big things in this province. People uh, use them every day. For example, not just the Patello Bridge they're going to be working on. They've built the uh, Expo Line, the Canada Line, the Millennium Line. Uh, the uh, John Hart Dam for BC Hydro. Uh, as well, they've also got work uh, at YVR in terms of upgrades there. So th- their work is voluminous, it's constant, and John Horgan, the Premier today, was asked about that. He did agree that, look, SNC-Lavalin is part of the BC economy, but he also warned them if they are found to be guilty of some sort of misconduct here, that could jeopardize their work on future projects. Here's the Premier. I haven't been following uh, events in Ottawa. I don't know uh, in, in, in excruciating detail where SNC Lavalin is in the legal process, but if there is anything that would compromise their to lawfully undertake work in British Columbia, then it won't happen. Just from a PR perspective, Keith, do you think that uh, what's going on here right now will impact the company's chances of winning other bids in the future? Well, you know, this scandal's been going on for some time, and right in the middle of the bidding process for the Tepetal Bridge, uh, the NDP government put SNC-Lavalin, it was in the middle of this controversy, on that shortlist. Look for them to do it again, no question, on the Broadway subway line, which is just beginning the tendering process, and whatever eventually replaces the Massey Tunnel. You can be sure SNC-Lavalin will be front and center on both of those projects. All right, Keith in Victoria, thank you. There has been another acid spill in Trail, this time leaking into the Columbia River. On Tuesday, an acidic solution was released from Tech Resources' fertilizer plant. The Ministry of Environment says the pH levels in the water returned to normal limits within hours of the spill. According to Tech, other than wildlife immediately affected at the outfall, there's no long-term health or safety risk expected. This latest leak comes on the heels of three other acid spills in Trail last year, two linked to Tech's operations. People there are demanding answers. 
Well, it's quite worrisome actually, since they've already had two previous ones. Uh, hopefully it's not going to be as bad as the last two. And I'm wondering what is needed to make it so that that doesn't happen again. Is Trail such a lovely place and a beautiful community? The Tech Fertilizer Facility was shut down after Tuesday's spill but has reopened. Tech says a third-party environmental impact assessment will be carried out. But first, some pretty sobering numbers tonight from a new poll on how the skyrocketing cost of living is affecting multiple generations. The RBC poll found that 43% of parents in B.C. say they've prolonged retirement plans to help support their adult offspring aged 18 to 35. As Sarah McDonald reports, parents in this province are making bigger financial sacrifices than any other part of the country. It may appear they've left the nest, but it turns out most young adults in this province are far from financially independent, and it's having a tangible impact on the workforce. It doesn't surprise me. What surprises me is the willingness how far parents are willing to go. That's according to a new study from RBC, which pulled parents of grown children right across the country on their nest egg and how much of it still goes to their offspring. I do buy the groceries, so I spend more money on that, and I was paying a cell phone bill. Finding nearly half of all parents polled here in BC are putting off retirement to subsidize their progeny. That same demographic concerned their grown kids between the ages of 18 and 35 are draining their savings. To also buy, buy them clothing, and buy insurance for their car, gas for their car, stuff like that. I think that's going a little too far. And it may not come as a surprise that parents in this province pay more than any other Canadians supporting their children. Nearly $7,000 annually from everything from education to living expenses. Nearly all parents polled have helped their children financially past the age of 18. From general living expenses to tuition to cell phone bills. And that's not including those grown kids bunking with mom and dad rent-free. I'm helping him in the way of allowing him to still stay at home so he doesn't have to go out and pay rent. But even with all that financial help, a concerning figure from this study lingers. The majority of parents in this province say their grown offspring are still struggling to survive financially. I don't think you ever stop supporting them. That delayed onset of adulthood as the cost of living climbs, now increasingly evident in the ripple effect on would-be retirees. Sarah McDonald, Global News. BC caregivers responsible for vulnerable children and adults with disabilities are getting a financial boost. For the first time in a decade, the province is increasing monthly support payments for caregivers, providing more than $100 million in funding over the next three years. For foster parents, that means an additional $179 per month. People who provide home shares through Community Living BC, as well as eligible adoptive families, will see their rates go up by 15%. And extended family members, for the first time, are going to be getting aunties and uncles, grandparents, will be getting an increase in their support by 75%, making them equal to foster care providers. Some good news for transit users who missed out on the first release of Compass wristbands. TransLink has put 10,000 more adult wristbands up for sale. The wristbands work the same as Compass cards. Users tap in and out. They sold out within hours when they were launched back in December, and TransLink says it will order more if demand remains high. If you still like to drive, a major shakeup tonight in Vancouver's booming car share sector. Car2Go is being phased out. But it's disappearing in name only. As Nadia Stewart reports, the change is actually a sign of the success of the service.
They are a familiar sight on the streets of Vancouver, but now Car2Go is no more. The popular company merging with BMW to become ShareNow. It's a merger. It's a brand new company that uh, BMW and Daimler announced called ShareNow. Uh, they're basically joining forces to uh, expand and improve car share offerings across North America, Europe, and eventually the world. The merger, a product of Car2Go's success. More than 200,000 people use the service here, the highest membership in North America. With Vancouver being one of the most expensive cities to live, car sharing means cost saving. Cost of cars is so expensive here, so I found that car sharing is way better than, than cheaper and convenient. I can grab in a point A, deliver in point B. I don't need to care about maintenance, insurance, everything's covered. This shift in attitude towards car ownership is having a widespread impact. What we think is happening is that car sharing also, in a, in a very, very walkable environment like downtown Vancouver, actually made driving easier. UBC Urban Planning and Public Health Professor Lawrence Frank says a recent study on the Comox Helmkin Greenway in the city's West End led to some interesting discoveries on car sharing, which is soon going to be the focus of another study. Frank says car ownership is quickly becoming pointless in the sharing economy. What we need is the ability to get places. Car sharing is perfectly logical. It's a wonderful model. It's making good use of information and, and uh, data that we have available real time on the Internet. Bike sharing is happening now. Um, all kinds of forms of uh, sharing economy are emerging. Vancouver is also home to many other car sharing platforms, including Evo, Zipcar and Moto. As for Car2Go, there are no immediate changes to rates or the way the service operates today. But there could be changes to the fleet in the future, as a merger with BMW means access to more vehicles for people to share. Nadia Stewart, Global News. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Broadcast live on Israeli television, the dramatic rescue of a man whose car was trapped by flash flooding near Jerusalem. Rescuers waded through the surging water and threw the man a life preserver, allowing him to make his way to safety. The Jerusalem area has been swamped by thunderstorms and rainfall over the past few days, and the harsh weather is expected to continue throughout the week. And historic flooding has trapped thousands of people in Northern California. It is incredibly flooded. It is really nuts. Both man and beast fleeing the rising water in Sonoma County as the Russian River floods two resort towns. The governor has declared a state of emergency and officials have evacuated a 40-kilometer stretch along the river. The water has begun to recede, but more rain is expected later this week. The breakdown in communication and negotiation at the summit between U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has sparked another disagreement 
between the two countries. Trump saying he walked away because Kim was asking for too much. The North Koreans, though, saying that's not the case. After the handshakes and the photo ops, the table set for today's lunch left empty. The president, who prides himself on deal-making, walking away. It was a very productive two days, but sometimes you have to walk. And uh, this was just one of those times. The dramatic collapse in the talks after the president says Kim Jong-un asked for too much, saying the North Korean dictator was willing to dismantle the North's largest nuclear complex, but not to take any further steps until the U.S. removed all the painful economic sanctions. This was very friendly. Uh, We shook hands. I could have 100% signed something today. We actually had papers ready to be signed, but... It just wasn't appropriate. I want to do it right. I'd much rather do it right than do it fast. The North Koreans tonight insisting they were asking for only partial sanction relief. The president's move meantime getting praise back home from some Democrats. If the president and the team there did not think we were likely to get something good, it's good that we didn't give up anything. Still after two summits, there's little to show for it beyond repatriating the remains of U.S. soldiers from the Korean War. Today, the reclusive dictator, in a rare exchange with reporters, was asked if he was really willing to denuclearize, answering through his translator. If I'm not willing to do that, I won't be here right now. That's a good answer. Wow, that might be the best answer you've ever heard. The Canadian space program is going to the moon. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing that Canada will be a partner in a NASA-led project to establish a space station that will orbit the moon. The outpost will allow people and equipment to go back and forth to the moon and serve as a launch pad for deeper space exploration. The astronauts who will walk on Mars are alive today, and they're in Canada, and they're in high school and university. Today's announcement is for them. We're going back to the moon this time to stay. I mean, this is Christmas and, you know, all, all, you know, Firstborn, all wrapped up together. Canada's, con- uh, Canada's contribution, pardon me, to the Lunar Gateway will be a new robotic Canadarm, Canadarm 3, which will repair and maintain the outpost. NDP MP Murray Rankin is not seeking re-election this fall. Rankin, who has represented his Victoria riding for seven years, is one of a dozen new Democrats to step down or announce they will not vie for a seat in the next federal election. Rankin plans to serve out the remainder of his term. The 69-year-old's next role will be representing the B.C. government in treaty renegotiations with the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Sad news from the entertainment world. Well-known actor Luke Perry is in hospital after what's being called a massive stroke. The 52-year-old actor who plays Archie Andrews' father on the show Riverdale, which is shot in Metro Vancouver, suffered the stroke yesterday at his home in California. He was reportedly responsive when paramedics arrived, but his condition deteriorated. It happened on the very same day that Fox confirmed a reboot of Beverly Hills 90210, the show on which he became a teen idol back in the 90s. In Health Matters tonight, the family of one of the victims of the Humboldt bus tragedy is launching a new campaign to increase the number of organ donors in Canada. The parents of Logan Boulay donated his organs after he died. And in the days and weeks that followed, tens of thousands of people were inspired to join organ donation registries. On April 7th, the day Logan passed away, 
The family will launch Green Shirt Day to promote organ donation awareness. They offered their son's okay. organs even before doctors asked. They literally, the doctors looked at us like, nobody offers their organs. And we're like, well, yeah, that's what we do. On the topic of extreme cold, for us anyway, mm -hmm. February might go down in the record books. Let's bring Christy in for the details. That's right. Uh, first, so I just want to enjoy this sunset for a second. Sunset time just before 6 o'clock now. Nice to see it bright this hour, isn't it? Uh, but yes, you're right. Looking back at February, it was a very odd February. I call it the little month that could. We had record cold here at YVR. Mean temperature, and this is unofficially because we haven't used today's temperatures, but it won't change it much. Uh, mean temperature at 0 0.3 degrees. Average for the month is 4.9. We're well below that. And the old record was at 0 0.8. That was from 1989. So we've blown past that, certainly. And there were a number of area, other areas across the province that also had record cold. Prince George, Williams Lake, Abbotsford, second record, uh, second um, coldest on record. Victoria, Kelowna, and Penticton. So it was right across the uh, province that it was felt. And we saw a significant snowfall, too. Uh, typically in the month of February at YVR, we would get two days with snowfall. We had 10, and that was the uh, number of days where it actually accumulated on the ground, but it was actually falling from the sky for many more days than just 10. And when we look at the total amount, 31 centimeters of snow, that could potentially put us in the top 10 snowiest Februarys on record. So yes, February, the little month that could. And guess what? It's not going to change. That cold Arctic air is plummeting right across the province again as another Arctic front pushes in. So that does mean a few flurries, not much precipitation, but the cold is going to return. Look at some of those numbers. Highs of minus 21 in Fort St. John tomorrow, and it's going to get colder as we head into our weekend as well. Not quite as bad across the south coast. I think we'll take it. Seven degrees in the sunshine tomorrow, and it's looking nice through the weekend as well. But still, you can see these temperatures are still well below seasonal. And I'll leave you with a nice shot from Norvan Falls in North Vancouver, all frozen thanks to Norman Lee. Is it ever? Little ice climbing opportunity there. Cool. Thanks, Christy. Beautiful. Thank you. Now, in New York, another example of how Mother Nature can be an artist. Check out this day camp in the community of Ramona Beach that's been turned into a winter wonderland by extreme weather. It's just one of many camps that are frozen solid along the shoreline. Strong winds created massive waves that pounded the shore, soaking the camps with water that turned to ice and as beautiful as it is, residents are worried about what will happen when the ice starts to melt. Could do some damage, no but it's encrusting everything. That's amazing. That's cool. Yeah, wow. We saw some images like that not too long ago uh, near the near Okanagan Lake, remember? That's from, right, yeah. From uh, the Summerland area. Similar kind of strange phenomena. A frozen site in Summerland. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. That reminds me, old movie fans will recognize that, Dr. Shivago. Ever see Dr. Shivago? I haven't. It's a long movie. You need to take a nap halfway through it. But there's a lot of <laughs> scenes where places are frozen because, of course, it's Russia. Mm -hmm. You know it's a big retirement, Squire, when he makes it into the open of the news hour here on Global BC. That's reserved for very special I know. retirements. And that's not very often. Not very often it happens. Retirement Travis made it. it. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen people in this building retire and not get on the opening <laughs> of the show.
instead of playing one more CFL season, possibly on a team other than the BC Lions, Travis Lule announces retirement today, 10 years after first arriving in BC. He was brought in by the Lions after they saw him at a tryout, tryout camp, make that, in Portland. They knew he had been close to making a couple of NFL teams during his time before coming to the CFL, and that gave them a clue that he would be worth bringing to training camp. But Travis Lule, and probably the Lions as well, had no idea that would lead to a 10-year career. I, when I came here to training camp in 2009, I had one little suitcase because I didn't know if I was driving back to Montana in two weeks, you know. In 2009, Travis Lule was one of the other guys trying to stay in the quarterbacking picture in B.C. It was filled with veterans like Jarius Jackson and Casey Printers and another young guy named Buck Pierce. But the Lions knew they'd be smart to keep number 14 around. You know, he's uh, a lot of Dave Dickinson and a little bit of Jeff Garcia. And Wally Buono's faith in his new prodigy was rewarded in 2011 when Lule rallied the Lions from an 0-5 start to the season to become Grey Cup champions in front of their home fans. There's no question that's the most fulfilling playing thing, but... The, the biggest takeaway from, from my time here is just is the people and the relationships I've made. The relationships Lule had with his various teammates over the decade are diverse. Some would be impressed by his leadership skills, his mentorship skills, or the fact he never complained once when he was taken out of the starter's role and made a backup again. Um, he was a pro's pro throughout, through the ups and downs, um, when things were good, things were bad. So um, he's a guy that, you know, you, you, you uh, look at and you say he's, he's the definition of a, a, a true professional. Um, I tell anybody, when you reach the top of being like an MOP winner and a Grey Cup winner, it's hard to go backwards sometime and basically, you know, take the back seat and let someone else, you know, have an opportunity. And you're always going to have that itch. And um, I can relate to that and I can see, you know, how it could have been difficult. But he was always a professional. The one thing Travis Lule had from all his teammates was respect. And a lot of that had to do with his sheer will to overcome numerous injuries and return. If his other body parts were as strong as his heart, he probably wouldn't be retiring. The mental, emotional energy to put in uh, to coming back, it just, you know, it, it takes a toll. And, and at the end of the season, um, you know, I sat down with Ed and Wally and I expressed, you know, I'm going to have to think about what I want to do next. And as time wore on, it was, it was really evident to me that, um, you know, that the desire to protect myself from that risk on the field um, was stronger than my desire to play anymore. You know, I'm thinking about life after football, and God willing, I have a lot of life to live and little kids and all that stuff, so um, that, that won. Speaking of a guy who gets hurt a lot and comes back, Alex Edler back after 11 games off the concussion. Canucks in Arizona. Former Canucks Brad Richardson's out of the penalty box. Thatcher Demko's in goal. Oops, that's in. Markstrom played great last night, but he needs a rest. one nothing Coyotes. Tanner Pearson almost scored in overtime last night. Here's another chance to score. This time he doesn't miss. But Richardson got another. It's 2-1 Arizona after one. John Tavares back in New York in front of Islander fans who now hate him for leaving as a free agent. They were yelling things that I would say is sounds an awful lot like when a donkey falls in a hole. If you know what I mean. Um... Anthony Belvillier scoring there to make it 1-1. The Islanders were fired up almost as much as their fans 
Casey Sezikis. 6-1 the final. Islanders beat up on Toronto. I'm still sorting that out. <laughs> I'll tell you after the show. Uh, girls AAA. Semiamu against Okanagan Mission. Quarterfinal action. And Langley faithed up with the basket here. Nice passing by Semiamu. They won easy, 86-33. Riverside, number three against Brookswood, number six. Brookswood has a long tradition of great girls basketball teams. Finally, Sophie figures out what I was saying. <laughs> Olivia Olman with the basket there, and Brookswood wins 90-86. to I thought I pretty much spelled it out. Oh, no, Chris actually literally <laughs> Oh, he spelled it out. Okay, good, good. Um... It looks like he who hesitates doesn't always lose. Free agent right fielder Bryce Harper is getting the biggest free agent contract in Major League Baseball history. The Philadelphia Phillies are signing him to a 13-year deal worth $330 million. Will it make the Phillies great right away? Probably not. He never won a World Series when he was with Washington. But Harper is a future Hall of Famer, and he's only 26. So he'll be around a while in Philadelphia. There you go. Incredible! It is incredible. A third of a billion dollars. That is. That's <laughs> right? actually. It's that's very nice. Right that's word, very right? nice spelling. That. Yeah. That's excellent. That's what you meant. That's what I meant. Okay. Exactly. Here's your snow report for tonight. A nice band of snow across southern BC. Whistler Blackcomb picked up nine centimeters. Grouse ten. Cypress three. And Sasquatch seven. Into the interior, Revelstoke and Fernie. No new snow, but Manny Park picked up fifteen. And Whitewater three. Big White has seven centimeters of new snow. Silver Star four. Sun Peaks was just a little too far north. Kicking Horse the same. Mount Washington though did get seven centimeters. Powder King minus nine today. Coming up on ET Canada, Lady Gaga responds to her romance rumors with Bradley Cooper, plus new music from James Barker Band, and wait a minute, the Jonas Brothers. You have to see it all at 7, right after the news over for now. It's back to you, Chris and Sophie. Jonas Brothers. Okay, Cheryl, thank you. Very cool. All right, with the exception of our producer, Marsha Gabriel, most of us can only dream of running a full marathon. And so she just called me a nerd in my ear, by the way. And so the, <laughs> she's not wrong. The accomplishment of 40 athletes in the World Marathon Challenge is truly staggering. They completed seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. But among them, one runner from San Diego really stood out. For most of us, a trip to the bottom of the world would be the adventure of a lifetime. Hey everybody, about 15 minutes from the start here. For Eric Tozer, that was just the beginning. Race number two underway here in Cape Town, South Africa. Almost 10 o'clock here in Australia. I'm here in Dubai. Minutes away from the start here in Madrid. Madrid. They ran seven marathons on seven continents in seven consecutive days. That's 183 miles on foot, 63 hours in the air in one week. 40 runners did this year's World Marathon Challenge and run at any hour of the day. Almost midnight. They sleep and eat on the plane. And then we got a nice long 17-hour flight to Australia. And as impossible as this may sound to most of us, it's even harder for Eric Tozer. It's, it's unrelenting and, and grueling and demanding. And, and let's pause right there because Eric's not talking about running. It doesn't give up. It doesn't stop. It's, you know, you can't take a day off. You can't take a minute off, really, because you have to always know what your blood sugar is. 15 miles in, blood sugar is 103. Nice and Eric steady. is the only person with type 1 diabetes to ever do this. Good job. Good job. Did you ever at one point say, what am I doing? I, I didn't. As cliche as it sounds, I never questioned why I was there. 
because I, for me, it was it was that was the that was the easy part. Right? I was doing it for a much bigger purpose than just me. My diabetes community is part of my team. We have this this bond because we all share this incurable disease. Along the way, he got thousands of messages from total strangers. You know, my kid has type one and I've shown him what you're doing and, and I want him to see this and her to see this and realize that there's nothing stopping them. And that's exactly, that was it. Eric finished the seventh marathon in Miami with his two daughters right by his side and his wife just a few steps away. Yay! We can have this disease, but still accomplish the seemingly impossible. That's Great amazing. Message. It is. And was it just me or for a moment that he kind of looked like a younger, slightly thinner Tom Brady? Yeah. I think so, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I was gonna, I was gonna, I'm still in the donkey. The donkey thing yeah. and, and the whole. Good okay. dude, too, because after going from Antarctica to South Africa to Australia to Spain, Dubai, Chile, and finishing off in Miami, the night after he got back, after all of those marathons and all of those flights, <laughs> he made it to a daddy-daughter dance. Nice. Well she will remember that forever. Sure will. Okay, final word on the weather? Sure. So a great stretch of weather on the way for us. Tomorrow, sunny, 7 degrees, and you can expect it basically through the weekend. Get out for a run tomorrow. Yeah. Thank you, February, for being very chill. (laughs) Have a good night. Good night, all.